You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. My son, Zeke, he's five. I have a daughter, Everly, she's three. And my son is super into running right now, just runs everywhere, and just so obsessed with being fast. It's all he cares about is being fast. And so he'll be like, come on, Dad, let's race. And so, you know, I'll kind of humor him a little bit, jog beside him, kind of keep it. But then sometimes I just turn on the afterburner because <laughs> he needs to know that I can still whoop him in a race, okay? I don't do it all the time. I'm not going to demoralize him, you know. But every now and again, he needs to know that his daddy is still way faster than him. And so I'll actually hear him talking to his friends, and he'll be like, yeah, my dad is super fast, which makes me feel really good. I'm not really that fast. I'm fast compared to him, which makes me feel pretty good. My daughter, still young, she's three, you know, doesn't understand physics and gravity and things like that quite yet. She thinks anything big is super heavy. And so if I have a big box that's completely empty, weighs about half a pound, she's like, Daddy, you're so strong. I'm like, that's right, baby. You remember that. <laughs> Literally anything big. doesn't matter what it weighs. If I pick it up, Daddy, you are so strong. Makes me feel pretty good about myself, you know. But then they'll come at me with some zingers that bring me right back down to earth. I remember uh, last year around Christmas time, it's like, it's, it's like a stronghold in my life, guys. I'm just confessing. I, I wish it wasn't. Like, I just have a really hard time putting up Christmas lights. Every year, it's a fight that's like, can you put, and, and then finally gets to the point, she's like, it's Christmas Eve. Christmas is happening tomorrow. Please put up lights. And so this last year, I'm out there, and I'm just, you know, grumpy Grinch, like, okay, fine, you know, and I'm out there. And I, like, do the bare minimum, like, just little white lights around the door, maybe some kind of around the... You know, and it's like, I'm up there stapling, just grunting under my breath. And then my neighbor is like freaking Clark Griswold with all of his blow up things and the lot. I mean, literally the San Diego power grid is being depleted from my neighbor's Christmas lights. And so I'm up there just, you know, trying to stretch out and staple the stuff. And my son, Zeke, is out there and he says, hey, dad. Do you think you could work a little harder so we could afford lights like the neighbors? <laughs> While I'm on the ladder doing this thing that I don't really love anyways, and I look over and my wife is just like, <laughs> just trying to hold it together. Unbelievable. And then uh, a good friend of mine, Chris Brown, some of you know him. He's the USA rugby coach for the women's sevens going to Tokyo here next month. So Chris uh, and I work out together, so I, I'm, I'm an Olympic-trained athlete. So everybody know I have an Olympic coach, but uh, whatever. And uh, we have a gym in my garage, and so Chris comes over, we work out, and um, Chris, there's, there's one exercise that Chris is a little bit stronger than me on, okay? And it happens to be the bench press. But he's really short. He's got short arms. That's really the only reason. He's not in there to defend himself, which is amazing. So he's a little bit stronger than me at that. I can squat more than Chris, just so everybody knows, okay? So everyone's clear. But just so happened, one morning, my son happened to peek his head out and saw Chris bench pressing more than me. And so now my son thinks that Mr. Chris is the strongest person in, like, the whole world. 
So one time I'm like trying to move this sofa and it's pretty heavy and I'm, and he goes, dad, should you call Mr. Chris? Can you believe that? And then we actually had a pretty big adventure. Um, Yesterday, we went uh, on this big off-roading trip up in a place called Menache Meadows, which is maybe the most beautiful place in all of California, just public service announcement. It's amazing. And um, I've done the drive north on the 395 a bunch, and you go through the desert, and there's a lot of really great things to see up there, so I've, I've done it several times, but I realized I've actually only ever done it at night when it's nice and cool. Wasn't thinking, and we were coming back yesterday during the day. And it's the desert. It's really, really hot. And I have um, an old Land Cruiser, and Land Cruisers have a safety feature where anytime the water temperature gets above 226 degrees, degrees Fahrenheit, the AC cuts off. Well, you know, I, this truck is all loaded up with racks and rooftop tents, and it's super heavy. And, and so going through the desert, it was over 226 degrees the whole time. So we have no air conditioning the whole way home. And it is just like, you know, every two seconds, like, Danny, I'm hot. I'm like, yeah, me too. I know, you know, there's nothing. We're just going to power through it. Katie's like got a squirt bottle we bought at Walmart and just like turning around and misting the kids, trying to keep everybody. And I'm just like, grumpy. I'm hot. I'm frustrated that I'm putting my family through this. We had this great trip, and here we are driving back through the desert. And I'm like, just really not having the best time at this point, you know, and just want to get home, super pumped about Father's Day, and it's just taking forever. There's like a wreck in Temecula and just like, goodness gracious. And so we finally just like, you know what, done. We stop in a little bit north of Temecula and just say, let's just wait until the sun goes down when it's no longer hot, and then we'll drive home. So we just find a restaurant, post up, and, uh, you know, I'm just, you can, the tension in our little family is palpable at this point. And Katie, being an amazing mother and wife, just said, you know, she says, trying to be encouraging, and she says, kids, isn't daddy just doing the best job just getting us through this really, really tough situation? And my three-year-old daughter just goes, no. (laughs) Anyway, so kids can just make you feel up here sometimes. And I think, you know, probably God sometimes just with us, we say things probably just shakes his head much like that. And when the disciples went to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. Our Father. That's the title of my message, Our Father. Now that's, you know, to us is like, Okay, so, I mean, you know, probably most of us start our prayers with, you know, hey, Heavenly Father, we just thank you today for whatever. People say, Father God, that's not a very, you know, groundbreaking thing. But when Jesus said that, that was crazy. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is actually the very first Jewish rabbi in the history of Judaism to refer to God in the first person as father. The first person ever in the history of time to say, my father. Only twice in the Old Testament is God referred to as father. Only twice, and it's not my father, it's just sort of father of Israel, just kind of this collective father. Jesus Christ, first person in the history of mankind to refer to God in the first person as my father. Not only that, there's only one time that we know of that Jesus Christ ever didn't refer to God 
as my father. Only once, every other time that Jesus talked about God, which was frequently, he called him my father. So there's something there. What does it, there must be something incredibly significant that up until, you know, you know, the Israelites knew him as Lord and judge and healer and deliverer and protector, but never once did anybody call him my father. So there has to be something there. If Jesus Christ comes as God incarnate and he brings a new way of thinking about God, there must be something there. And I want to look at um, what a father does and what we can take from the character and nature of God based on what fathers do. And fatherhood is under a t- attack. And that is abundantly clear. If you just, and I, I, I could riff off 5 billion statistics, probably a lot of you have, I'll give you three very compelling ones. 85% of all children which exhibit some type of behavioral disorder come from a fatherless home, 85%. of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. Children without a father are four times more likely, four times more likely to be living in poverty than children with a father. And it's no wonder, just look at how fathers are portrayed in movies and TV shows, like, you know, I don't really watch TV that much anymore, but back when I was younger, they had these things called sitcoms, which I think is short for situational comedy. They're like, you know, like everybody loves Raymond and Seinfeld. Look at these, these TV families and you have like, everybody loves Raymond. Raymond is just a goofball, like just aloof, like has no idea what's going on. He's kind of charming because he's so funny, but it's actually the mom who holds the family together. She's the one who's self-aware. She's the one always correcting him when he's being a doofus, right? And that's the picture we get of fathers, just kind of, you know, don't have any clue. Look at Homer Simpson. The longest running TV show in the history of American TV, if you didn't know that, is The Simpsons. And Homer Simpson is a donut-eating tool, and it's Marge who keeps the family together. It's Marge who's the sensitive one. It's Marge who talks to the kids. And Homer just is stumbling his way through life eating donuts. And that's the picture of fatherhood that we get from mainstream media. And, and we, Katie and I were even trying to think of, like, what, what movies could we even think of where, like, a father was actually portrayed as, like, a cool guy? And it was really hard. Really, the only one I could think of is probably Brian Mills from Taken. You know, daughter gets snatched away and he just like, I've got a special set of skills that make me a nightmare for men like you. And then he goes and kicks down doors and gets her back and, you know, plays this amazing sort of father protector kind of role. But even in that movie, Brian Mills, played by Liam Neeson, is out of touch with what his daughter needs. He gets her a karaoke machine and she's like 18 years old and he just kind of doesn't really know. And that's the picture of fatherhood that we see. And it gives men an out. It gives men a picture that they can say, well, it's just how we are. And, and, you know, and then wives can just roll their eyes and I guess just boys will be boys. But no, that's not a good picture of fatherhood. And fatherhood is under attack because clearly if Jesus Christ is the first person, son of God, to actually refer to God as my father, understanding God as a father must have some unbelievable serious implications for us. So it's no wonder that the devil would go after fatherhood. 
And I want you to come with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read um, uh, at the end of chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Now, you have to understand, Paul, the Apostle Paul is, is writing this only a handful of decades after Jesus lived. Okay, And Jesus was the first one to refer to God as my Father. Now, the Apostle Paul writes these words. This is still radical speech. When he says this, this is like crazy. And we're going to start in um, verse 26 and read through the end of chapter 3 and a little bit of verse 4. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So faith is the mechanism through which we are sons or daughters of God. My son is my son through blood. Blood is the mechanism of our parent-child relationship. Katie's dad, Jim, my dad died when I was young. I call her dad, dad. He's, my, he's actually my father-in-law. Marriage is the mechanism by which he is my father. Faith is the mechanism by which God is your father. It is through faith. Verse 27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you are a Christian, then the single most important identifiable characteristic about you is that you are a child of God, period, full stop. Marco is not a Mexican Christian. He's a Christian who happens to be Mexican. He's a son of God first before he is anything else. My wife is a child of God and then a female second. She's not a female Christian, right? The single most important identifiable characteristic of us is that we are children of God first. Chapter chapter 4, verse 1 The Apostle Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So what do fathers do? And how can we look at what fathers do and help us understand more about the character and nature of God? And we can see a lot of it in this passage. The first thing is that fathers prepare. Fathers prepare their children for life in a, at times, mean and unforgiving world. That's a father's job to prepare their children. And we see this illustration from the Apostle Paul that this, um, this father has, uh, has stewards, has um, uh, guardians that teach this son, that look after him. It is a, ch- a father's job to prepare his children for life. Now, most people don't want God the father. They want God the grandfather, Grandfathers, I'm being a, watching Katie's parents with my kids. Being a grandfather looks awesome. It's like all the upside of parenting and none of the downside. All the fun, feed them as much candy as you want, take them to the zoo, just fun, 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 fun. And the minute they throw a fit, it's like, hey, deal with this, not my problem. And rightly so, that's my job. People want God the grandfather. They don't want God the father. They just want the God who feeds them candy, tells them they're awesome, takes them to do fun things, never once disciplines them, never once comes down hard on them. Listen, I am harder on my children than anybody else on earth. 
there's not one person on earth that's harder on my kids than me because my job is to prepare them for life outside of my home. Now, I know as a father, I know as a father, when I need to press, I also know when I need to back off a little bit. I know there's moments where I can't just be hard, hard, hard all the time, but there is no one on earth that's harder on my kids than me. When I was young, I was probably 10 years old, my dad took me to his parents' house. They had an older home and needed some work done, and he was brought a couple friends, and we just kind of did some stuff on the house. We were rebuilding fences and re-roofing, and it was a different time back then, okay? I was like 10 years old, up on the roof, no harness. My dad just gave me a can of spray paint and walked away. He said, hey, paint this thing. Just a different time when, when I was a little younger, okay? And he gives me this, this piece of gate hardware, you know, like a little swinging hinge, and it was all rusted out. So he had scraped off all the rust with a steel brush and said, I want you to paint this. And he showed me, here's how you spray paint. You go, psh, 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 nice, even, smooth strokes. My dad taught me how to do this. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'll be back. I'm going to go. And so, you know, I'm 10. So after my little index finger, after about six little squirts, was starting to wear out. And I was like, man, I got a, I got a faster way to do this. just saturate this thing with black spray paint. And it was jet black, okay? And my dad comes around the corner with one of his buddies and is like, what are you doing? And this thing is like, just so globbed up with paint. Just, I mean, it was, just looked terrible. And he got on to me. He was like, son, I told you exactly how to do this. I told you the way that you were supposed to do da 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 and I know that if my mom would have been around, she just would have been like, Joe Yeager, he's just a boy. Don't you talk to him that way. But you know what? I've never forgot that lesson, ever. And it taught me that in my family, we do things the right way. We don't take shortcuts. We don't do things that, that are easy. We do things the right way. And as a young 10-year-old boy, I'm thankful that my dad taught me. I've never forgot it. I was spray painting a piece of gate hardware. And it was a massive life lesson for me because my dad came down on me sternly and said, hey, in this family, that's not how we do things. We do things the right way. It is a father's job to prepare to teach. And in the same way, your heavenly father prepares you and teaches you. And there's moments where it may feel like he's coming down hard on you, but he is preparing you, teaching you, and training you. You know, when, um, again, I'm, I'm still pretty new at being a dad, just kind of figuring it all out a little bit as I go. And I feel like, especially when, like, the kids were really young, when they're first learning to walk. And I, I just felt like all I did was say no every minute of the day. No, don't touch that. Put that down. Step away from it. No, no, stop. Hey, 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 no, no. And I got to the point, I'm like, am I doing this wrong? Like, I feel like I just say no every minute of the day. But I've realized that as my kids get a little older, my daughter still gets no quite a bit. My son, a lot less. That as they get older, I say no a lot less because I have taught them what is right and wrong, what's a good decision, a bad decision. And in a 
a healthy parent-child relationship, the amount of no's that you give your children will decrease as life goes on and on to the point where you don't say no to them at all. They're completely responsible for themselves. And you will find as a new Christian, God says no a lot. I had this young man in our church, I won't, I won't out him, but he just, you know, was brand new to faith, never, didn't grow up in church, just knew nothing. And all the time he'd be like, hey, can I, you think it'd be a good idea for me? No, no, no. Hey, what would you think if I, no, 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 no. It was a, a lot of no's for this young man. And now he's an amazing leader in our church and um, don't have to say no to him anymore. But in the beginning, you will find that God has to say no a lot because it's for your protection. But then it will get to a point where God actually just starts giving you choices. And there is no right or wrong answer. People think that the will of God is like some balance beam that I've got to walk on. And if I take one misstep, then all of a sudden I no longer have access to plan A. It's on plan B. And there's no way to get back on the plan A track. And God's up in heaven just racking his brain trying to figure it out. How do I make something out of this mess? And that's not the way that it works at all. There's sometimes God just gives us choices. It's kind of like when we have a, you know, a family fun day, Saturday plan, and we will say to the kids, do you want to go to the beach or do you want to go to the zoo? There's no right or wrong answer. It's not a trick question. We just, whatever they want to do, we will go do. And you will find that as you develop in your faith, there are times where God will just say, it's up to you. I don't care. I'll bless it either way, whatever you want to do. And stop trying to figure out, you know, what is God's will? I don't, there's sometimes God's like, just go, just do it and I will bless it. <laughs> you know, we as, um, the reason that dads are good teachers is because we have a different perspective. We are older and wiser. Everything my kids are doing, I've done before. And so I know how it's all going to work out for them, right? I remember one time my, my son, my, my son Zeke, if you know him, he, he's going to be like an insurance actuary when he grows up. He's like the most calculated. He assesses the risk of every little situation. Like I never, ever, ever, ever worry about my son running out into the street, into traffic. It's actually like, I'll be walking. He'll be like, dad, stop. <laughs> you didn't look both ways. I'm like, right. Okay. Thank you. Yes. And I remember one time he, he was really little. He was probably uh, maybe one and a half, two years old. And he had kind of climbed himself up onto a, a chair and kind of had his belly on the chair and his legs were hanging out. And his legs were this far from the ground. And Katie and I are in the other room and all of a sudden there's just this blood curdling scream like, like he's getting attacked by an animal or something. And we run over and he's just like, just dangling on the chair. And he's just like, Daddy, help me. And, you know, Katie, being a lovely mom, just wants to run over there, you know, thinking he's going to be traumatized from this episode and going to need therapy when he's older because if we don't run over and save him right away. And I just was like, hold on a minute, son. Your feet are this far off the ground. You got yourself up there. Just back up and you'll be fine. And it took, and he, you know, he calmed down and sure enough, it was like, and went on his merry way, safe and sound. And how many times are we kicking and screaming and wailing, God, please save me, you know, help me, help me, what am I gonna do, what am I gonna do? And God is like, son, your feet are this far off the ground. You got yourself up there, you can get yourself down. And it was my voice that gave my son the courage 
I don't even know why I'm saying courage. It was not courageous. It was, but whatever. For him, it was my voice that gave him the courage to work himself back down off the chair. Your heavenly father has a perspective that you do not have. He sees things that you do not see. Fathers prepare their children. Second, fathers provide for their families. Fathers provide. And if we look at this passage that we read in Galatians, if you look at chapter four, I think it's verse like one and two, it says, now I say that the heir, and it it refers to the son as an heir. And if there's an heir, that means there's an inheritance, an inheritance for this son, which means there's something pretty substantial waiting for this boy. It also says that he has um, in, I believe verse two, says that he is under guardians and stewards um, that his father has, has assigned to him. So if you have kids and you, they have plural stewards and guardians, like what do you think the financial situation of this father is? Probably, probably doing all right, okay? But I love that, you know, just providing financially is, and that, that's very important. I don't want to take anything from that. But it's also not all that you provide. And I love, this is really, and again, don't get, don't get mad at me. I am reading you the Bible, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. But I want you to notice how interesting it is that the Apostle Paul is drawing this analogy, and he says that this son is under the care of guardians and stewards. Where's the dad? Why doesn't it say he's under the care of his dad? Why isn't his dad teaching him algebra and teaching him whatever? Because the dad's out, building a legacy, building an inheritance. The reason this son has an inheritance is because the son is out taking territory, working, conquering. And I believe, you know, like the, in the, the baby boomer generation in, in the 50s and the 60s, you had kind of this very um, uh, absent father, I think, was, was a very, where it was like the dad was there and he would work hard and, um, and get up in the morning, read his coffee, read the Wall Street Journal, go to, go to the factory, work, and then come home, super tired, drink a beer, watch TV, go to bed. And it was a great provider, but just kind of not, not there, not present. But I think in some ways we've actually swung over here, where now it's like, I want a job where I can work from home, where I have infinite flexibility, where I can be at every t-ball practice, every baseball game. I want to get up in the morning and do the morning routine with the kids. I want to put them to bed. I want to, and again, listen, I'm, don't, don't misquote me and say, Pastor Mike said I can be a workaholic. I need to get out of here. I'm sorry, babe. I got to go to work. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is a healthy tension that a father lives in of being present, but also setting an example of being out in the world, taking territory, conquering, winning. It's so um, important that your kids see you taking territory and conquering. It's in, it's in the, this passage from the Apostle Paul, it's not just that the, the father provides financially, he provides by setting an example. And Katie does a really, really great job of this in our home. You know, the kids will be bouncing up and down, about to go to the beach and say, hey, you know, is daddy going to go to the beach? And Katie will say, no, daddy's not going to go to the beach because he gets to work today. She doesn't say he has to work. My wife says, no, daddy gets to work today. And the reason that we get to go to the beach is because daddy's going to be working today. 
And so it sets a, a tone in our household that work is not some terrible drudgery that daddy has to do and some terrible beatdown. It's actually really exciting that daddy gets to go to work and daddy gets to build a, a legacy for us. And we have this home because daddy works. And I think it's, we've swung a little bit too far this way where it's just become um, all about, you know, let me be at everything and try to do. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying don't be a present father. I'm saying there's a healthy tension. There should be moments in you as a dad where you are like, man, all I want to do is go to this t-ball practice, but there's this thing at work that like I really, it needs me, I need to be at. There will also be moments where there's something at work and your son or daughter is like, daddy, will you please, and you need to be able to say, hey, you know what, this can wait, I'm going to go. There's a tension. And this father in this story sets an example. He provides not just finances, but an example. When I, um, a lot of you guys know the the. My story, my dad died when I was young. I was 18 years old. And when I was 15, he got, um, got sick and became addicted to, um, to opioids and ended up uh, overdosing and passing away when I was 18. And um, what I lacked as an earthly father, and this is important, this is why the church is the most essential institution on the planet. God filled in the gaps for me through the local church. That's why it was infuriating in 2020 when the state tried to tell us that church was non-essential. Church is the single most essential institution on the planet. And so for me, what I lacked in in an earthly father when my dad died, God brought through the church three men into my life. There was Larry Grayson, there was Paul McDonald, and there was Randy Owens. And they all sort of filled in these gaps for me. And I could look to them as what it looks like to be a man, what it looks like to be a leader, what it looks like to be a father. Larry Grayson was a pastor. I actually lived with him. When my, my dad died, it was, it was really very tragic, very messy, sent my family into a pretty big spiral. And so I just needed to even get out of my mom's house for a little bit because she was just processing and grieving and trying to deal. And so I went and moved in with this man, Larry Grayson. He taught me what it looked like to be a man of God, to, to be a, a, a disciple. And then Paul McDonald was this amazingly stable family man, had a great job, worked really hard, had provided a, a great life for his wife and his kids. And from Paul McDonald, I learned what it looks like to be stable and steadfast. And Randy Owens was a businessman. He owned a a ready-mix concrete factory. And I worked for Randy Owens. And he showed me what it meant to be a dreamer, to to believe God for big things in business. business. What I lacked in an earthly father, God used the church to fill in the gaps. And so I want you to know, maybe you didn't have a great dad or a, a dad at all, or maybe you're in here and you're a single mom. Let me just release you today to all of our single moms. You cannot be a dad to your children. You will fail and you'll be, it'll just be, it'll wear you out. You'll be frustrated. Your kids will be, your kids will be like, why are you acting like a dude? I don't understand. It's very confusing. And I want to just encourage you, single moms, the single greatest thing that you can do for your kids is to get them in church. Because here they will be surrounded by men that God will use to fill in the gaps for them. A father provides. And lastly, point number three, fathers love. Fathers love their kids. I'm obsessed with my kids. 
like, I don't, I don't even just, I, I mean, I do. I love it when they're, they interact with me and they're calling me daddy and laughing and wrestling. I love all that stuff. But I even love, this sounds kind of creepy, but I like watching them when they don't know that I'm watching them. I like to just watch them interact with each other. I like to watch them play with their friends. It gives me great joy to watch them have fun without me. And in the same way, you know, listen, God loves it when you're reading your Bible and spending time with him and in your car praying and worshiping and he loves that stuff, but also loves it when we interact with one another, when we are out in the marketplace taking territory, when we're, you know, having great relationships with one another, he loves it. One of the most um, famous, really, stories of all time in all of written literature is a story uh, told by Jesus in Luke chapter 15. It's called the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. And um, I'll just kind of paraphrase really quickly. There's a son, uh, there's two sons. The younger brother comes to his father and says, hey, can you divvy up my portion of the inheritance? I want to get out of here. And think about what that means to the father. He's saying, you are literally dead to me. I just want my inheritance and I want to be out of here. And this father says, okay, fine, sure. Divvies it up and gives his inheritance to his son. His son goes off to Vegas and he's at the Bellagio just living it up and just wasting all of his money on prostitutes and gambling. And and then it all goes away. All the money has been spent. And then the Bible says that there is a, uh, Jesus says, this is Jesus telling the story, that there is a famine in the land. And all of a sudden he has nothing, knows no one, has no friends, no family, and actually starts working for a farmer and is feeding the pigs. And And Jesus says that he is looking at the slop in the pig's trough, just wishing he could have a bite of it. And all of a sudden he realizes, wait a minute, not even my father's hired servants live like this. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I'll say, father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but just make me as one of your hired servants. And he's kind of, you know, we all do that where we get our PowerPoint out. We're going to make our case before God. You know, when we screw up, we get something wrong and we're ready to, to, to you know, recommit or, or get back on track. And we're like, okay, Lord, here's all the things I'm going to do. I'm going to read my Bible every morning. I'm going to, I'm going to join the high team and I'll be in the orange shirt and I'll be out there waving. I'm going to do that. You'll, you'll really love that. And we like make our case of how we're going to earn our way back into God's house. And so then he starts making his way home. And the Bible says that while he's still a long way off, the father runs to him, which is crazy because in first century Palestine, a father, a patriarch, and this, this man was wealthy. He has land and, um, and servants and, and, and all these things. A, a first century Palestinian father would never run, ever. It would be a sign of great humiliation. Like children run, women run. But in first century Palestine, a, a man of that status would never run. He would have to lift up his robe to run and that would, it would show his bare legs, which would just be the most, like, you, you would never, never ever do that. But this father does. When he sees his son, he takes off running. And when the son gets to the father, he just goes right into his rehearsed speech. You know, hey, father, I, I know I've sinned against heaven and, earth, and, and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this father doesn't even doesn't even acknowledge it, doesn't say, no, don't worry about that. Literally just, just glosses, just ignores it and says, hey, go get me a robe. And he actually says, get me the best robe, which the best robe would be the father's robe. Go get me the best robe. Get me a ring for his finger. Give me sandals for this son of mine was lost, but now is found. 
And that is the love of God. And what's so, um, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask God. I, I feel like God actually made a little, little mistake, a little typo in the Bible. Because this is the story of the lost son. But the story actually has two sons. It starts and says that it's the young, there's an older brother and a younger brother. And it's really the story of the prodigal sons. Because after this younger brother comes back, they're throwing this big party. The father says, go get me the fattened calf. Let's slaughter. We're going to have a, a good old-fashioned carne asada. Come on, somebody. And they're having this barbecue, having a great old time. And then the older brother is waiting outside, throwing a big tantrum. You never cook me the fattened calf. I want the fattened calf too. And think about how embarrassing it would be for this father. He's in there celebrating. He's got all of his friends over, every, all the neighbors, everybody. And then one of the servants comes in and is like, hey, big brother's out there. He's not coming in. So the dad goes out. And the Bible says that the father pleads with his son. Doesn't say, you ungrateful. He pleads with him. And the, the, the son says, have I not always obeyed every commandment? Have I not served your household? Have I not done this? Have I not done that? And this brother of mine goes off and squanders everything, comes back, and you cook the fattened calf for him? And the father says, son, everything I've had has always been yours. Always. And he pleads with his son to come back inside. And it's amazing because you have one son who was alienated from his father because he did so bad. But you have another son who was alienated from his father because he had been so good. And this second son, the older son, thought that he could save himself. He thought the reason that he had favor with his father wasn't because the father loved him with unmerited favor. It was all the things he did, all the, the ways that I served your house, all the commandments of yours that I've kept, all of this, all of that. Both of them missed the mark. Both of them. One son, because he lived terribly, and one because he had lived so righteously and thought that that would save him. But it's only the love of God. That's it. Remember, the Apostle Paul said that it is through faith that we are adopted into the family of God as his children. It's just belief. It's just believing that he is who he says he is, that he really is your heavenly father. So I want to take a second and just pray as we close. I'd love it if we just uh, bow our heads and close our eyes. And There's a, a pastor in our church who, um, when he was young, tells this, this story of, of being, I think, about 12 years old and, um, and had a younger brother who uh, lived with a, a, his, their mom and, and stepfather. And this stepfather was, was very, very physically abusive and violent and um, would get particularly upset when they broke something. And so this, these boys were playing roughhousing on the bunk bed and were hanging on one of the, the wood planks of the railing and actually ripped it, ripped it off. And uh, the dad wasn't home yet. Um, and the, this little boy knew like when, when he gets home, it's gonna be bad news. So he got his little 10 year old brother, he was 12 and they packed up their, their bags and ran away from home and said, we're not, don't wanna face the wrath of, of my stepdad when he comes home. And, and he tells the story of being on a, a street corner at night. It's drizzling a little bit. And his, they've just got a little bag, you know, on their back and a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old. And the, the little 10-year-old brother kind of starts to whimper a little bit. And he tells the story of being 12 years old and just kind of 
putting his arm around his brother, just kind of like, you know, golly, what are we going to do? How are we going to make it? And, and that, uh, that man is Pastor Charles Fuller, who now leads our um, Emerge Men ministry and is one of the greatest um, fathers in this house. And obviously, um, God protected him and looked out for him and, and has done amazing things through his life. But I, I feel like that moment of standing on the street corner in the rain as a little boy with no dad around is how we are when we're away from God. Like, it, how I don't know how people can face the the harshness of of this world without their father going before them and beside them and behind them and protecting them and making a way for you. And I feel like maybe there's there's um, some of us in here who feel that way. You, you've been out trying to take on this this mean old world all by yourself under your own strength, you know, with with in your power. Maybe maybe you, you've been making a million bad choices, or maybe you think that you're just going to you're going to earn your way to heaven by just doing a bunch of good things. And, and Jesus says, no, either way, you are away from the heart of the Father. The only thing that we can do is take one step towards him and he'll take a thousand towards you. And so if you're in here today and, and need to make that decision, need to actually um, acknowledge God is your father. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. You will be adopted into the family of God. God will be your father. You will be his child. You don't have to, you know, like the prodigal son, you don't have to make a PowerPoint of all the things you're going to do to try to earn his love back. You don't need to say a bunch of Hail Marys. You don't need to say a bunch of Our Fathers. You don't need to go do a bunch of good deeds. That way your bad deeds. It's just belief. And I want to walk you through a very, very simple prayer of belief. And then you, that's it. You will be adopted into the family of God. You will have all the benefits of having a heavenly father. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.